Alright, so the first reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And the second reading is the whole, the big one, the whole of Isaiah 28. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. The wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be like a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer, Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast. For it is, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people. To whom he said, This is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, Do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. So that they go... So that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, the realm of the dead. We have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge, and falsehood our hiding place. 
So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. Also, all this also comes from the Lord Almighty whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Thanks, Joel, and good morning again, everyone. Um, perhaps you can think of a time in your life when you faced a crisis or, or something that was just beyond your ability uh, to deal with, something that left you overwhelmed, not knowing what to do. Uh, might have been a health struggle, might have been the, the loss of a loved one, a, a financial difficulty. Um, Isaiah chapter 28 is written to people who are facing crisis at a national level. Um, they've got this powerful enemy nation bearing down on them. And they have to decide how they're going to handle this crisis. Are they going to trust God to get them through it? Or are they going to seek their help somewhere else? And it's into this situation that Isaiah brings this message that challenges not just them back then, but us today as well, about where our true confidence lies. Uh, There are three powerful truths about God that Isaiah wants us to see here. Um, Truths that shape the way that we respond to God. Uh, So firstly, God must be taken seriously. Secondly, God is worthy of our confidence. And thirdly, his wisdom is. And his plans are perfect. Um, So first up, God must be taken seriously. Um, We'll just zoom out for a moment and get our bearings. Might be um, particularly helpful if you're here for the first time or not overly familiar with 
with Isaiah. Um, so Israel, the nation of Israel, long ago has um, divided into two separate kingdoms. There's a, a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, and both of them, by and large, have turned away from following God. Um, both of them are, are facing the threat of invasion uh, from Assyria, which is a, a powerful nation to the north. Now, Isaiah is a prophet who God sent to Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, although the first part of this chapter here uh, is very much directed towards the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah begins by saying, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. And the city he's describing here is Samaria. It's the, the capital city of the northern kingdom. Uh, it's a city of glorious beauty, and yet it's a city that, that's fading in power, a city that is ready for destruction, a city that's going to be trampled underfoot, swallowed up like ripe figs, uh, because its people have rejected God. Uh, and Isaiah particularly singles out the religious leaders in the city for the, for the way that they've failed. Um, he, he tells them, priests and prophets stagger from beer, they're befuddled with wine. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are, are covered with vomit. I might remember there was a big news story a couple of, a couple of years ago when, when COVID was really at its peak in the UK. And, the, and then it turned out that while all this was happening, the, the Prime Minister had thrown this, this big, big party, um, which I imagine was a much more dignified affair than what we have described here. But, but it still caused outrage because of the crisis that was at hand. And it's the same with these Israelite leaders here. War is on their doorstep. It's, it's a crisis. They're meant to be taking their leadership role seriously, leading their people through this. And well, here they are getting drunk. And the root problem is that they're not taking God seriously. Um, Isaiah describes the way that they respond to him and to, and to other people who are trying to preach God's word to them. Um, they say, who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining this message? To children, weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. So in other words, they, they think that God's message to them, so his warnings, his instructions, they just think it's nonsense. It's gibberish. It's baby talk. It's, it's not worth listening to. And so God tells them, okay, okay, I'll, I'll speak to you with strange words, if that's what you want. I'll speak to you through judgment. I'll speak to you through the Assyrian army invading your land, speaking to you in their, in their strange language, capturing you, taking them, taking you from the land that I once gave you. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, 722 BC, the northern kingdom is defeated by Assyria. Its people are either killed or taken captive. Because they reject God's message as nonsense, God speaks to them through a foreign nation, bringing judgment on them. And then we get to verse 14, and we see that all of this is here as a warning for the southern kingdom. God says to them, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in 
Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Now, most likely, Isaiah doesn't kind of give dates all the way through everything that he writes, but, but most likely he's, he's writing all of this sometime after the northern kingdom has been defeated, so they know what he's talking about, um, but before the Assyrian army lays siege to Jerusalem in 701 BC, which we'll get to a little bit later on in Isaiah. Um, so basically he's saying to the leaders in the southern kingdom, have a look at what happened to the northern kingdom when they mocked God. Don't make the same mistake. Learn their lesson. God must be taken seriously. God must be taken seriously then and now as well. This is, this is a message for us too. We need to take God seriously. We need to be uncomfortable with those parts of our lives where we know that we're not honoring him. And the more that we take God seriously, the, the better prepared we're going to be to navigate a world that doesn't take God seriously. Uh, it's a popular video. You might have, might have seen it on YouTube. It's um, Ricky Gervais, the UK comedian, uh, basically gets on a stage to do a stand-up act and really just, just opens up a Bible, picks it up at Genesis chapter 1 and starts reading it aloud and, and just pauses from time to time just, just to mock how, just how stupid the creation story sounds. Um, he's on a stage, he's got an audience who are, who are laughing all the way. Uh, it's, it's reflective of how much of our society reacts to God and, and reacts to God's message. And, and it's easy to feel quite small and quite foolish as someone who, who believes God's message when we hear a response to it like that. Or, perhaps even worse, when we face a response like that from someone who we know in person. And yet the fate of the northern kingdom shows us that we're right to take God seriously. Uh, what might seem foolish now is going to be seen to be anything but. And so God must be taken seriously. And also, God is worthy of our confidence. Uh, the leaders in the southern kingdom, they've been scoffing at God's word as well. And, and part of that has been that they've been boasting in human strength rather than God's strength. Isaiah tells them, you boast. We have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead. We've made an agreement. When a scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Now, the context here is that with Assyria bearing down on them, God's people have got a choice. Do they trust God to deliver them as he's promised? Or do they seek their security through an alliance with Egypt, a stronger country who might be able to rescue them? And they choose Egypt. But what seems like a strategic military decision is a covenant with death, God tells them. It's probably not the name that they actually had for it, but at the end of the day, they're, they're seeking refuge in a lie because it won't save them. They're trusting in human powers that are going to fail them. God tells them, your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. 
when the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. And that's what will happen. The Assyrian army will will come along, it will push Egypt aside in no time and roll into the the southern kingdom of Israel, capturing all of the fortified cities all the way up to the, the capital of Jerusalem. It's a devastating invasion that that exposes the the false trust that the leaders have placed in human powers. And not only that, but it will be God himself working through the might of the Assyrian army. God's not just sort of taking a step back and letting all this happen. He is involved in this. We're told the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the Valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. At Mount Perizim and Gibeon, they were, they were places where God had led Israel in the past to, to famous military victories, a bit like when we hear about Gallipoli or Dunkirk. We, we naturally think of battles that were, that, that were held there. But now God's doing a strange work, an alien task. Because instead of leading his people to victory... He's bringing disaster on them. He's bringing judgment. It's God's nature to, to love and care and provide for his people, but, but their rebellion against him has led him to do a work that must be done because justice is needed. But it's a work that he takes no joy or no delight in. And yet destruction isn't God's end goal. It's not his end goal. Even his discipline and his judgment against his people has purpose behind it. Because God's wisdom and his plans are perfect. And that's the point of the farming language that we see in those last few verses of chapter 28. When a a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? It's a bit of a gear change, isn't it? Judgment, 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 agricultural advice at the the end of the chapter. Um, But the point is that crop farming and crop harvesting, it's quite a violent process in a sense, all of the the turning up of the soil, all of the, the processing, but only for the purpose of growth. See, a farmer doesn't just keep on hacking up the soil forever and ever and ever and ever just, just for the sake of it. He does it so that he can plant seeds that grow. There's a God-given purpose behind the work that he's doing. We, we read, he's God, the farmer's God, instructs him and teaches him the right way. Now, this might be a little dig at the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the northern and southern kingdoms, that even this farmer, without his Bible college degree, he knows how to, to follow God's wisdom. But the main point here is that God doesn't just destroy for the sake of it. There's purpose. From judgment, he'll bring growth. And his judgment isn't excessive for the sake of it. God isn't cruel. He'll only bring the judgment that is needed for his overall good purposes. Now, I'm not an expert on extracting cumin and 
caraway seeds in 8th century BC farming practices. But apparently farmers back then knew that you didn't need to get carts and horses and sledges involved in the process. You just, just had to beat it out with a stick. And in the same way, God's judgment will be exactly what's needed. It will be just. It will be appropriate. He'll bring the destruction that's needed for his purposes. No more, no less. Isaiah finishes the chapter by telling us, all this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Really, the, the big message throughout the whole book of Isaiah, if you were to try and boil it down, is that God is bringing judgment that will lead to salvation. There's a, a corrupt city that must be judged and a, and a glorious new city that will emerge. It's ultimately a message of hope and a message that's grounded on a sure foundation. Uh, verse 16, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. We've seen already in previous weeks throughout Isaiah that um, when there's prophecy in the Bible can often have a meaning that is true and immediate to the people who were there uh, when it was written, but also a, a greater meaning that's, that's true on a, on a longer-term, more universal scale. Uh, and so for people in Isaiah's day, this cornerstone here is, is most likely referring to, to the people who still listen to God, uh, the people who took God seriously, the people who put their confidence in him. God is going to preserve a faithful people even through the destruction. That's, if you like, the first horizon of this prophecy. But there's a, another horizon beyond, one that would appear 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words and delivered this message. And this precious cornerstone is Jesus himself. And, and we saw that in our New Testament reading from one Peter that Joel read for us. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples and he, he wrote a letter where he encourages other Christians about the hope that they have because of Jesus. Uh, he reminds them that, that God has redeemed them by the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross has saved them from God's judgment. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead has given them new birth into a living hope that can never perish or spoil or fade. And so it's no surprise when, when Peter then tells them that this cornerstone, this sure foundation that Isaiah spoke of was Jesus himself. Whoever puts their confidence in Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection as the foundation of their life is secure in a way that nothing and nobody else can ever offer. And so when, when we look at Jesus, when we look at him, when we see who he is, when we see what he's done for us, when we see the sure foundation that he offers us for life, we, we see how wonderful God's wisdom and his plans truly are. We see that he's worthy of our confidence. The God who warns us about judgment is the very same God who sent his own son to spare us this judgment 
and to restore our relationship with him. Isaiah spoke this message to people who were living thousands of years ago, but it's a message for us today as much as it is for them back then. Uh, the, the, the sinful nature that the Bible tells us is, is within each one of us. It, it, it creates in us this desire to, to push God out of the way, to put our confidence in human strength. It's much more tangible than, than depending on God. If, we can, if, I, if I can trust in myself or trust in someone else, that's much more tangible. It's much more comfortable in many ways than depending on God. It's much more flattering to me as well. But Isaiah tells us there's a day coming when human strength is going to be seen for what it is and God will be seen for who he really is as well. On that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown for his people. So where does my confidence ultimately lie? When everything else is stripped away, what, what is the foundation that my life is built on? Is it things that I achieve? Is it what other people think about me? Where's my confidence when crisis or, or difficulty comes my way? Now, we do need to be careful here because God specifically promised victory to Israel all those years ago if they put their confidence in him. They, he specifically said, I will defeat Assyria for you. He doesn't promise us today that all of our problems are going to disappear in a moment if we trust him. He doesn't promise to miraculously heal sickness or, or make our debt disappear. After church last Sunday, I chatted with someone who, who shared about a loved one who had been miraculously healed. Um, but I also chatted with a couple of people who, for whom their loved ones hadn't been healed, and, and, and we all know that those healings don't always come. Well, the victory God promises us is the victory over sin and death that he's won at the cross and the empty tomb. And so when, when crisis and, and difficulty comes our way, we can know that God, the God who sent his son to rescue us, the God of perfect wisdom and purpose, that he's with us in the mess. He's going to do what's right. In fact, it, it can be those times of hardship that God uses to to strip away those false confidences that we have. To show us that Jesus is the one sure foundation. Uh, that nothing and no one else can provide for us in the way that he can. This is quite personal for me. Um, I think about my faith journey and how it all played out. And as I look back, God used years of illness and fatigue to, to bring me to trust in Jesus. Um, I didn't realize what was going on at the time, but, but God was stripping away all the things I was putting confidence in that weren't him until really all I had was him. Of course, the ultimate question is, where is my confidence for that last day? 
Where is my confidence for that last day? On that day when, when everything is laid bare, when, when every secret thought and motive in our hearts is, is made known, and when I stand before a perfect God who judges each person, a God who desires nothing less than perfect justice and perfect righteousness, where's my confidence going to be? On that day, is it going to be in all the all the achievements that I've managed throughout my life? Is it going to be the nice things that I did for people? Is it going to be all those times that I went to church? Or is my confidence going to be in the precious cornerstone that God has provided in Jesus? The one who faced God's judgment so that I never have to. And the one who calls us to seek our refuge in him alone. Just as I finish, I want to I wanna just tie these things together. We've, we've talked about um, taking God seriously. Uh, we, we've talked about putting our confidence in God. We've talked about trusting in God's wisdom and purposes. And, and one of the places where this really lands for us is with prayer. When, when I'm choosing to, to spend time praying, whether, whether it's just you know, one, one day where I'm choosing to spend time in prayer or the time that I, that I spend day after day in prayer, what I'm doing is, is I'm expressing that, that I take God seriously. I'm expressing that, that my confidence ultimately is in God and that I trust God's wisdom and his purposes. I know for, for me personally, as I examine my own heart, one of the, if I'm being honest, one of the barriers to prayer deep down is, is having confidence in my own strength, having confidence that, that I've got the, the, the money, the skills, the time, and whatever I need to get by. Prayer is our way of saying, no, that's not true. Our confidence is in God. Uh, in a couple of Sundays' time, we're actually going to think really practically about what this looks like for us, both as a church, family together, praying together, but, but as individuals in a church as well, what it looks like to, to build our lives on prayer, both personally but also corporately as well. So I just want to whet your appetite for that right now. I won't go into too much more detail, but um, I'm look, really looking forward to, to having that conversation together as a church family. But for now, let me pray. Our just and mighty God, we, we ask that you would help us to take you seriously, to see you as you truly are, to see that you are worthy of all praise, that you're worthy of all our confidence. We ask that you would help us to build our lives on the sure hope of your good plans and purposes for our redemption that you've secured through Jesus Christ, your precious son, our precious cornerstone. And may our confidence in all seasons of life and for all eternity be in him alone. Amen.